uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Why are we in Philippians 1, 3 through 11? Because previously we were, we were at the beginning, and we're still there, and we're just going to keep moving. And whenever we get done with verse 11, then the next week, like next week we're going to be doing verse 12 and on. Like it's, we're just going to move through Philippians, just like we moved through Galatians and John and Genesis. We're, we hold to Scripture, and we ask that the Lord gives us understanding and just so y'all know, my idea of success is if we read this passage and then the fire alarms go off and we've got to evacuate the building and we don't get to come back in and, and do like a, a 30 to 40 minute sermon, but we got to read this scripture together, then praise the Lord, it was a success. As long as scripture is, is proclaimed, then it does the work that it is meant to do. All right, so here we go. Philippians 1, 3 through 11. That's, that's my fancy intro, y'all, just so you know. All right, here we go. I'm in the ESV. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I mean, if you just read that passage, you hear it. I mean, Paul loves the Philippians. And you and I don't talk like this because this is weird. Like, that's just the truth. I mean, if I'm sending you a text saying that, that I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, you're like, okay, good. I mean, is he really? Like, every time he thinks of me, is he really praying that with joy? But then he goes on and he says that um, it's right for him to feel because he holds them in his heart and that they're all partakers of grace and how I yearn for you with all the, I mean, if I sent you a message this week, Paul, that says, Paul, I yearn with you with all the affection of Christ. That's weird. Nobody loves like this. And that's to our condemnation. This is how we are to love. And that's what you hear. This is Paul pastorally speaking to people that he loves. But you know what? It's only modeling how you and I should love one another. And so we're going to kind of press into this today. But the just going to tell you, this love seems awkward to us because we don't love like this usually. The world's love is broken and it knows it. And that's what we tend to model our love after. But this is the love of Christ that He puts into our hearts. And we get this glimpse of what love really looks like among the saints. You know, it's one thing for, for me to tell you, or for, it's one thing for you to know that I love chastity, my wife. You can be like, oh, he loves her. Oh, but you should sit down with me, and I will tell you how much I love her. You can read um, something that I write and know the depth of my love. And even then, God loves her infinitely more. 
But it's one thing for us to know of someone loving another, but it's another. You sit down and you get to hear the one who loves the one that is being loved, and you get to hear that deep, affectionate love, and, and then you really hear it. I mean, if we had been there whenever Paul was writing this, if we had been in that cell, and as he's writing it, we could see the expression on his face, what would that have looked like? If he's writing of the deep affection and how he yearns for them with all the affection of Christ, I mean, we would have known differently than just simply gazing into it right now. But the whole point of this message, there's one point. Okay, there's only one point. Three sub-points, but one main point, okay? We're going to take this one point, we're going to look in three sections of the Scripture just to see how this develops more and more and why. Why and how we can love with something like this. The one point is this, that there is an abundant love of Paul for the Philippians. That's it. I just want to know how, why does he love them like that? I want to love like that. One day I will be dead and gone. There's, there's, a, there's a quote, I forget who says it, but preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Right? I will be forgotten one day. I want to preach the gospel. I want to go where it's going to go. I want to die because then I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. Sorry, son. And then I will be forgotten, and I'm okay with that. But I want the love that I have in this life to really and truly reflect Christ while I have this life. I genuinely believe that you and I are supposed to love one another like this. This is a glimpse at deep-seated, gospel-oriented love. It makes no sense to you and me. I think the closest sense of it that I, that I get now is of a father or a mother for their child. In the middle of the night, I don't cease to love my child. I thought I knew love. I thought I knew affection until I, heard, until I held my first my first boy right here, Jackson. The other two are gone. So in the moment, you know, he's the favorite. Okay. But I do remember in that moment whenever he was born and there's all the chaos of it and we're excited, but, but then it finally gets still. It finally gets quiet and we're in our room and they will him in there and I just hold him and I look down and I have two competing thoughts of I thought I knew love. But then there's a new depth there. And then the other one was I could really mess this kid up in the next 18 years. Right, so there was a humility there. But the gospel took a new route in that moment because I understood that if I had this love for my son and I have a finite love, then the God who has infinite love, who could infinitely love his eternal son, and then to give him up, I understood the gospel in a new, richer way. How in the world could he give up his one and only son? For me. So what we see here is the fruit of a very deep-seated, very gospel-oriented type of love that you and I are supposed to have. Do we love like this? In our flesh, we cannot. In our spirit, we can. And because of the gospel, we must. The world needs to see a love like this displayed so that they can know of a loving God who sits on a throne. So, Let's push into this. Section 1 is what I want to look at. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I am not going to go back over all of these. We have a podcast. My wife just discovered this this past year, that we have a podcast. She was talking about her favorite podcast that she'd been listening to, and 
And I'm like, is it mine? And she said, her words were, we have a podcast. And so there was my humility. But, but there's, Jared's sermon is out there. I'm not going to go over verses 3 through 6 because he did an excellent job. You, that was Jared's first sermon uh, at Cross Life, and you really did an excellent job. You professed Christ. You pointed us to Scripture. So, so go back to that. I do want to start in verse 6, though. It's kind of like an on-ramp for us. I wanted just to really grasp 6 because it's, what's, it's part of what's holding all of this together. Verses 6 and, and I would say 7. That's where the heart of our attention is going to be this morning. So here's what verse 6 says. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what Jared pointed out two weeks ago was that Paul has this abounding joy. He has this abounding love because, not of his circumstances, but because of the hope that he has in Christ. Because Paul knows that regardless of what happens, that he who began a good work in them is going to bring it to completion. The love that we have cannot be based on our circumstances. It's based on Christ. That's the joy that we have. You know, for Paul, and I think that Jared did, he highlighted this in that, like there is this joy that Paul had in his prison cell as he's thinking about them. And he goes all the way back to Acts and talks about how the gospel went to them and brought them out of darkness into the light of Christ. Like he reminded us of that. But, but you read all of Paul's letters, and here's where Paul finds all of his joy, that God is either sovereign or he's not. God is sovereign, which means he rules and reigns over all things, or he's not sovereign at all. And for Paul, he says he's absolutely sovereign. That's really, really important for you and me this morning as, we about to, as we're about to push in to this verse. And if God is sovereign, which all of Scripture testifies that he is, if God is sovereign and all things exist and occur for His glory, then in God's sovereignty, O oh Christians, you must find peace. This world will not go as we want it to go. The circumstances will not always be comforting. But if God is sovereign, then He knows all things and He knows exactly where you are. All of Scripture reveals that God is always in absolute control of absolutely everything in the entirety of all of His creation. The problem is, do we trust it or do we not? When things are good and peaceful, whenever we sing worship, we, we trust it. God is sovereign. He's good. He's for me. What can come against me? And then we walk out the doors into the workday and we know everything can come against us. But Scripture reminds us that God is sovereign. It's not that he ever forsake his sovereignty, it's that we forget he's sovereign. Paul knows the sovereignty of God, he knows his kingship, and he has great joy. So, just an encouragement, when life happens, we don't look around, we look up. We keep our eyes on the throne, and whenever our eyes are on the throne, then all the distractions begin to fade away. The problem is, we begin to look at all the distractions, and we wonder, God, where are you? And he says, I'm seated right on the throne fix your eyes on me, and everything else begins to fall into place. We cannot fix everything around us, and we were never meant to. We are not God. He's sovereign. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones, just before I leave that point, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that 
that no one who has read his Bible should be, what's his word, should be surprised at where the world is today. God's not surprised at this. God prophet, I mean, he, he sends, his, sends his prophecies and he sends his uh, spirit to move these men to write and say, here's what it's going to look like in the end days. This is all in accordance with God's plan. I don't get it, but it is. So we shouldn't be surprised. It's just how will we respond to that? Here's how we respond. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have many troubles. It's guaranteed. You and I will have many troubles in John 16, 33, one of my favorite verses. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's where my peace is for today. Okay, I say all this because I really want us to grasp what Paul is writing. Okay, so look again at verse 6. He's writing to them. He has this weird sort of otherworldly supernatural love for them. And he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, look at that. And we see his hope. And his hope is not in the circumstances. His hope is in what, the, in what Christ will do. I want you to hold your place there. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans 8, 28. And we're going to read through 30. And I'm probably going to disappoint several of you. Romans 8, 28. It says this. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. We got posters of it, we got signs, we got coffee mugs, we've got t-shirts, we got camp themes, that God works everything for the good for those who are called according to His purpose. You have to read verses 29 and 30 that follow them. You have to. That verse doesn't hang out there on its own because, get this, if you only cling to verse 828, then when hard times come, you're going to say, does it really all work out for the good if I'm called according to your purpose? If we don't keep 28 rooted with 29 and 30, then 28 becomes a questionable verse in our lives every single day. So, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. That's just cool. And here's where I'm going to disappoint you. As someone who has no problem with predestination whatsoever, this is not about predestination. That's where I'm going to disappoint you. I know so many brothers and sisters in Christ who would love to stop at, for those God foreknew, He also predestined. We divide churches, we break fellowship with one another over those first six to eight words whenever there is something so much greater than predestination going on here. I know that that is going to be theologically disappointing to those who, who want to hear me preach so much more, but it's not about predestination. It's about so much more. It's better than predestination. 
If you want to know where I stand on predestination, buy me a cup of coffee, okay? We'll talk about that all you want. I don't think that that was ever the point of the passage. Listen again in all of its fullness. 29 through 30. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. You know what I see there? Is that no one is lost in the process. From the work that God begins, He sustains it to the end. I think that that's the thrust of the passage, not predestination. That who God calls, He's going to glorify in the end. That this process, it might take a while, but He loses no one in the process. And you know what? That's probably what you need to hear most days. That's why Romans 8.28 makes so much more sense in light of 29 through 30, not because of the word predestined, but because everything can work to the good of those who are called according to His purpose because God loses nobody in the process. What He begins, He finishes as only God can. It's so much more. So I don't hang my hat on Romans 8.29 for predestination. I hang my hat on that for Philippians 1.6. That I am confident of this that He who began a good work in you believers, He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ because He loses no one in the process. And now you can also all go buy me coffee and I'll talk to you more. Romans 8.28 becomes questionable because only Satan would tell you that God has forgotten you and that He has broken His promise and even He knows that He's lying. So you need Romans 8.28, but you need 29-30 through 30 to know that in those valleys, He is unquestionably there from the, from the very beginning. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. Romans, or I'm sorry, Philippians 1.6. Just a reminder, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Believers, like everyone in this room, this is going to be kind of awkward. I actually, I really do want you, I want you to look around this room. Like, some of you are doing the awkward little to the side. No, everybody, you're only awkward if you don't do it. Like, I want everybody to kind of look around right here, okay? My question is this now. You've seen this room. Do you, Cross Life, believe that the work that God began in these fellow believers, He will complete it? Like, do you really believe it? If so then you need to be confident and you need to accept the messiness of the Christian life as we strive alongside one another, and you need to be joyful and love them by being alongside them. If we're not confident that the work will be completed in them, then there's every reason to be cautious so that we don't get drugged down into the mud. But if we truly believe that the work that God began in them is going on in this room and that what God began in Philip and that what God began in Mark is going to come to its fullness because God loses no one in the process, if that's absolutely true, then we cannot pull away from one another. We must press in and we're joyful because we know the end from the very beginning. When you know the end of the process, then the beginning is so much more doable and the middle is endurable. Like if I know for a fact that I'm going to end at this point in the fullness of Christ, then all that I endure in this moment right now, I don't question, God, have you forgotten me? I question, God, what are you doing in my life right now? 
But when we know the beginning from the end, it changes everything. And when you look around this room, and you're looking at fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who say that I do profess Christ, I am His, then you can be confident of this, that no matter what they endure, no matter how messy it looks in this moment, God will bring it to completion. That's why Paul is excited and joyful, because he knows the end result right now in this moment. And so do you. The Christian life gets messy. But we have joy because we know that what God began, He will fulfill. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's a lot to be said about, well, what if they're being disobedient? Okay, yes. We have joy because if God began to work in them and they're disobedient, then He will correct them and bring them alongside. But He may very well be using you and I to do that. Look at section 2. Verse 7 through 8. It is right, Paul says. Right? It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, he really reiterates what we've been alluding to from the beginning. He really, truly, genuinely, deeply, affectionately loves them. And he says, it's right. Look at the third word of verse 7. It is right. Why is it right? He tells you, because I hold you in my heart. I'm pretty sure if I send Trent a text later this week that says, just thinking of you, Trent, because I hold you in my heart, I'm probably not going to get a text back for a while. That's just awkward. Okay, thumbs up. That's right. (laughs) He says, because I hold you in my heart. And he says, because you're all partakers with me of grace. Y'all, the the world cannot grasp this sort of love because it's not of this world. This this is a love that was born in eternity and brought to us. You and I love conditionally, whether we like it or not. It's just what we're born into. In our flesh, we love based on these conditions. The love of Christ is unconditional towards us. And He brought it. Listen again to Romans 5, 6 or 11, because this is eternal love. This is a deep-seated gospel love. It was our opening verse this morning, and here it is again, Romans 5, 6 or 11. For at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God proves His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath through Him? For if when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you catch that? Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our lives of abundant love and joy are lives of rejoicing because we have been saved by Christ. I do want you to turn to 1 Peter. This is about us all being partakers. Whenever you become a partaker of grace, whenever you're brought in by the gospel, 
then you and I are no longer strangers. You might not know my name. I met several of you at the beginning, and you're sitting there going, I need to know it by the end. You might not know my name. You don't know my life. But I'm a brother in Christ. I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus Christ came from heaven to die for me and that he is bringing me home. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. Peter writes, But you, you believers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now that's who we are right now. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Verse 10, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. This changes everything in our orientation. The gospel broke into the lives and radically and eternally changed everything of who we are and where we were destined to go. And everyone in this room who professes Christ made the exact same decision to follow after God. And so God is calling us both to walk closer and teaching us to follow Him more. And so therefore, you and I are fellow partakers of grace. You and I are co-heirs with Christ. I love you more and have a deeper affection and connection with you more than my blood family in this life. Not because they're unbelievers, but because what Christ did was brought us up into a greater family. It changes everything. Sunday mornings are like a family reunion for me. It's the brothers and sisters in Christ coming together. It's God bringing spiritual mothers and fathers and grandfathers and younger brothers and sisters into my life for my good, for His glory. Like this is a spiritual, worshipful family reunion. It's not that I don't love my family, I do. But that's a, that's a love built on, on memories and blood and emotion. And my dad and my family are listening to this podcast going, thanks, son. <laughs> but they're caught up in the eternal family as well. My family here, if we just think of family as what's here on this earth, that family ends. My marriage is a momentary marriage because there's a greater marriage in heaven that I'm being prepared for. It makes me sad in one sense because I love marriage. I think it's fun. I drive her crazy and and get on her nerves, which I think is awesome sometimes. But it will end. The love of this earth is broken and fragile and it ends, whether towards my family or in my marriage. But there is a greater love. There's a greater family and we are being drawn towards it. And He will not lose you in that process. That's what it means to be a partaker of grace. But before we can share and show the gospel to others, you and I have to be reminded of the gospel every single day. The gospel is not just what saves us, it's what what, uh, sanctifies us, it's what secures us, it's what holds us every single day. We need to be reminded of the gospel. So while we were enemies, Christ came for you. You might be saying, I know that, I know. Let that sink in. That when we were yet enemies, Christ came. When you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. 
We were children of wrath, and yet Christ loved us. And it radically and eternally changed everything about who we are. It brought us into a process in his foreknowledge, and he will bring you to glory. Everything is endurable if you know the end result. The end result is that he is bringing us home. So the gospel radically reorients love for us. The reason that Philippians makes no sense to us and that it seems kind of heavy and weird is because we don't love like that and we should. We have been changed to love like this. Look at John 13, verse 34 and 35. And then we'll, we'll keep moving towards, towards our final section. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus is speaking and he says, A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Kind of glance there and look at the context of that. You know what's going on in the context whenever he says, love one another, and as I have loved you, love one another, and by this will the whole world know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The whole context of it, you know what's just happened? He's been talking about his death. He just gave the morsel to Judas and sent Judas out, and then he's about to be betrayed, and he knows all this, and he takes this moment at the end of everything, and he says, this is what you need to know. One new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. And how is he loved? We know. We know that he did not hold on to the glory of God and just simply sit on a throne. But he condescended to us and came to this earth. That he walked this earth. That he was mocked, betrayed, spit upon, beaten. We know that those who were closest to him would flee from him. We know all of this. And yet, he, knowing all those things, would sit there and wash the feet of his disciples, one of whom is about to betray him, another of whom is going to deny him, all of them desert him, and he still washes their feet. And he says, as I have done to you, as I have loved you, that's how you're supposed to love one another. Without qualifiers, without distinctions, without conditions, this is what Christian love is supposed to look like. This is the kind of love that an unbelieving world needs. They need to see that we love differently. Not just the pastor, Paul, for his flock of Philippians, but one towards another. Now here's the truth. Verse 35. This is a hard verse. It's wonderful. Put it on a t-shirt, put it on a coffee mug, but live it out and it gets a lot harder. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, the chief qualifier that others will know of us is how we love one another. No, we don't love because of circumstances, church. We love because of Christ. He commands it. He gave himself for it, and he's calling us to it. Okay, so cross life, awkward moment again, all right? I do want you to look around this room. Do you love one another with such a richness? 
fellow believers, do you love one another with that richness? And you can even think of, think of those other saints who are gathered in other churches. Do you love those brothers and sisters with, with this depth and richness? This is what an unbelieving world needs to see. Cross life is not the end of the gospel. We're just a conduit of it. We're not the only church in town and we don't have it all figured out and we never will. We're not about cross life's work. We're about kingdom work. We love all the saints wherever God gathers them. Verse 9, last section. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So just real quick, you know what he does? He, said, he tells them in the beginning how thankful he is for them. And then he talks about how much he loves them. And you know what thankfulness and love ultimately do? They lead you to prayer. So that's what he does. He says, here's what I'm going to pray for you. And there's three things you can see. Not against prayer requests. In fact, I try to reach out once a week and say, how can I pray for you today? Or how can I pray for your family? I, I really enjoy doing that. I'm not taking away from that, but take a look at how Paul prays. Whenever you see Scripture record a prayer or what they're praying for, we should pay attention. Here's what Paul prays. Number one, that their love may abound more and more. Number two, that they are growing in the knowledge of Christ. And number three, that they will have discernment. He knows that they face persecution. He doesn't have to ask. He knows where he is. He knows what's coming at them. And he says, here's what I pray, that your love abounds more and more. Why? Because by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one towards another. I think that we need to have a love for the lost. Don't get me wrong, but whenever Christ is talking, he says love for one another. In the richness of the fellowship of the saints, there should be abounding love. That's why Paul says, I pray that your love abounds more and more. And then he says, I pray that you have knowledge of Christ. You can't just have an emotional experience. Emotion's good. God gives us the complexity of emotion so that we have our highs and we have our lows. Jesus wept. He had compassion, and the Greek term means that his, his gut literally wrenched whenever he saw the crowds coming to him with needs. We know that he abounded in joy. We know that he knew and was confident in who God was, and yet we still know that he prayed, God, if your cup could pass from me, let it. And we know that he, he experienced such um, extreme emotion in his body that he would sweat drops of blood. Jesus experienced a whole gambit of the complexity of emotions. But it's not all emotional experience. That's not what you and I need. What we need is knowledge of Christ. You need knowledge of Christ. You don't need Twitter and you don't need Facebook facts and you don't need like a quip from a, pastor, from a pastor or this pastoral quote. What we need is knowledge of Christ through His Word. And as His knowledge comes in alongside the love of other believers, then we are refined and, we create the, and God creates this discernment in us so that we know what is good and what is excellent and what is right and what is pure. And you know what? What I perceive to be good and excellent and right and pure in this moment hopefully is so much deeper five years from now because I've been caught up in the fellowship of the saints and we're all pushing together for this. So, I'm going to pray for all of you this week in this way. Every single one of you, guest, we got your name on a card. means we can track you, right? That's just how life goes now. But I have your names, guests, and members, and cousins, you know, like whoever it is that's all with us. 
I'm going to be praying these three things for you this week. Because I do want you. Without me or any elder having to do it for you, I want you to prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I want you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God, and that's not on me. It's in your love abounding. It's in your knowledge of Christ. It's in your growing discernment. It's in the work of Christ that He began in you and that He will see it to completion. He will not forsake you. So cross life, one more awkward moment, okay? You just got to indulge. I just want you to, I want you to see this as I think Paul was genuinely really doing this and in our individualistic society, we don't like this. But you and I are members of one body. We are a temple, each individual stones being built into the fullness of what God desires. And so that's why I want you to see and feel this connection. I do want you to look around the one more time. Is this what you desire of those people in this room? These are going to be fun lunch conversations because you're going to be like, you kept looking at me. All right. But I want you to see that face, even if you don't know their name. Really, is that your desire, that that person would grow in the knowledge and the fullness of Christ and therefore be pure and blameless before Him? Do they approve what is excellent? That they are filled with righteousness. Is that what you really want for them? Are you just walking alongside life, doing the best you can, church member, covenanted? Oh, this is what it means, by the way, 3 through 11. This, I hope, becomes the abounding culture of Cross Life Fort Smith. If not now, then five years from now. And I hope seven years from now we love more deeply than this. What an incredible witness for Christ. We not, might not give any guests because they come in and they're like, man, those people are weird. That's okay. Right. Y'all, here we go. We, we pray about those things which we care most deeply about. That's why I keep having you look around. We pray about those things which we care most deeply about. And I wanted to, I wanted to go on there, but then I, I, I want to stop. I need to have a, just like a quick pastoral moment. Because I care about a lot of things deeply that I don't pray about, to be quite honest. It's the sin in me that, that distracts me. What we tend to pray for are those things that we feel at a loss for. And even then, when we don't pray because we feel like we should be able to handle it on our own, and so prayer often becomes a last resort. Yeah, if you hear nothing else, like just, just kind of listen to this and see if that's not true, that prayer often becomes a last resort. We come, Lord, I've done everything else I know to do, so, so now I, I, I don't know what else to do, so I'm coming to you. We know the right thing to do. We just don't do it. We tend not to do the very thing that we know we should do. Satan deceives us and we believe it, and so we don't pray. What you and I need more is prayer primary and first. For one another, for our spouses, for our children. See, the, the glory of the gospel, too, is this, that, that now I can actually say today, I know what I bring to this whole situation right here, and it's not much. All the goodness that comes out of our gathering, out of the worship, out of the, the proclamation of the word, is not me, and I'm okay with that. And the Browns are okay with that, and the Bears are okay with that. We all know what we bring to the table, and it's not much. The gospel just makes us realize that that's okay. 
We don't have to do it, and we have nothing to prove. It's not our own personality, wit, strength, favor, knowledge, merits. Like, we bring nothing to the table. God brings everything, and He says it's good this way. And so prayer is all about realizing that we don't have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We don't have to have tried all these different things. The first and primary thing that we should be doing is praying. The greatest thing that I can do for you is to not necessarily step right into your messiness, but to pray for you. Seems like a very hands-off approach, but here's the truth. God's going to do in your life what I never could. I can do in this world what I can, but God is going to do in your life what I never could. And I have joy in that because what He begins in you, nothing else can stop. That's why I want you to keep seeing one another. That's why I want to know, will you pray for one another in this way? That he will bear the fruit of righteousness in that person. You will have things that you need to go to God with. Philippians 4, 6-7, through 7, just here. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. He wants to know them. He can do more with them than any of us ever could. Y'all, I'm going to come back to this now because I, I think we understand. Even as I'm saying those things, some of you are like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I get it. Quit doing and just pray and see if there's not a peace that sets in, if there's not a wisdom that He gives, if there's not a comfort that He holds you with. Therefore, we pray about those things which we deeply care about. And those things which we deeply care about should include one another, the fellow saints, whom Christ has redeemed. Pray for one another. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for your children. Pray for one another. Pray for the saints wherever they gather. And you pray them for them because you do deeply love them. And you love them because Christ, because of Christ's deep love for them. Here's our conclusion. If you didn't get it today, love matters. Not a, not a all conditions gone by the wayside type of love where, where everybody's just embraced freely. Like this is, there are different perceptions of Christ in our culture. The hippie Jesus where everybody comes and there's just total peace and there's no judgment or sin. That's, that's not scriptural. That's not what I mean by love matters. You've heard it. Don't take that out of context. I mean in the church and amongst the saints, Love matters because by this will all men know that we are His. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13, and we will pray. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. And as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I'm going to go back to one more passage for you, okay? We often hear this at weddings. And when I hear it at weddings, I go, okay, it's very sweet. And if it was in your wedding, I am so thankful it was in your wedding. The reason I go is because it's so much richer than the wedding. It's so much bigger than just that. It's good advice. It's, it's you know, you, the, I'm saying they can take that and they're like, oh, there's advice. I need to be patient. I need to be kind. No, this is, this is Paul writing as a believer amongst other believers. This is what love and the fellowship of the saints looks like. It is patient and it is kind. Think about churches. Think about our obligation to love like this. With one another, love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But it, re- it does rejoice with the truth. Church, cross life, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Let's pray. Lord God, Teach me to love like that. Because I can't do that. I can't in my flesh because I know who I am. But I wasn't meant to. The fruit of the Spirit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And with a joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness, Lord, you and me can generate and cultivate this kind of love. And that's why I have joy as I look at the saints gathered today. Because the work that you began, you will see it to completion. I know this is true because you are God and you are sovereign. Lord, help me to love well and to love deeply by your Spirit. Lord, give me a gospel-oriented view of love within the church and for the saints wherever they gather, and not for my own self. Lord, we love you. Amen.